1: Good morning, this is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, activists take to the streets to remember the impacts of nuclear testing on the region. But with Japan planning to discharge nuclear water into the Pacific, some see their fight as all the more urgent.
2: Speaking up about these things is not easy, but when we stand together, it, it's much easier, it's... It feels much
1: safer. And in Vanuatu, hopes are high for Australia to extend its kava import trial beyond 2023.
3: Uh, where kava is now one of the main commodities that generate a lot of social economic impacts.
1: We also hear from a Samoan Fafafine activist who's helped change minds and laws around trans equality in the Pacific. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. First, though, to Vanuatu, where a Category 4 cyclone tore down power lines and caused massive ocean surges. Cyclone Judy forced communities to be evacuated amid heavy rains and gale force winds. It was in the capital, Port Vila, where the storm hit hardest. And joining us now is the Pacific Communities Melanesian Director, Mia Rimon. Good morning to you, Mia. Morning. Um, So tell us about the situation at the moment there in Port Vila. What's been the impact of Cyclone Julie?
4: Today is really going to be a bit of a cleanup day for everyone. The power is still off in most of the town. While water has been restored, there's just a lot of road blockages. There's debris everywhere. And it can't be underestimated the impact of this cyclone on families and businesses in Port Vila.
1: Uh, and I understand it was yesterday and um, particularly in the mornings where where the cyclone actually passed through the capital there. What, what was it like? Um, what was it like during the storm?
4: Well, the power went off very early in the morning and then the first big wave of the storm came through and gale force winds, as you said, huge storm surges and people really had to hunker down. A lot of roofs Flew off. A lot of people have lost their homes and fruit trees upended, whole trees upended, roots and all, and lost gardens. So that happened. And then the eye of the storm, people went outside to just survey the damage and not long after, just within hours, the other wave came through from the other direction and people suffered yet another wave of damage.
1: Gosh, and how are you, Mia? How how are you yourself and also your staff there at SPC? Have they been affected?
4: Our staff are all hunkered down in either hotels or homes, but of course people don't have power and we're just charging our phones in our vehicles if we are so lucky to have them. We're looking at another cyclone coming through. This is the big issue for Vanuatu right now is while this Category 4 cyclone is now hitting Tana and the Southern Islands that were badly affected by Cyclone Pam, this country won't even have time to clean up or recover because we have another tropical low that is expected to turn into a cyclone that is coming through Vanuatu tomorrow. It looks like this is going to be a whole of country effect from two different storms that is just incalculable for the damage to the families here.
1: Yes, that that other storm is is scary. I mean, to be hit twice like this. um, Do you feel like you are prepared? Is there a lot of work that needs to be done to help communities?
4: Well, the Pacific community, we work very hard to help the National Disaster Management Office and the Meteo services to really have good early warning systems. And Vanuatu is expert at helping people to understand when there is risk and to get to safe places. So most people in Vanuatu will be able to weather the storm from a church, from a school, from a secure building. The problem is for them not having a home to go back to or a home with no roof, having all of their mattresses, their clothing, everything destroyed or soaked, and it's still raining. It's probably going to be raining for days, and people with small children cannot dry their clothes. It's, it's quite a burden on people. But we're very happy that Vanuatu is able to be prepared. The problem is, is that these storms are happening more and more with greater ferocity and the world needs to help us with climate change financing and with attention to look at how the Pacific Island countries are absolutely reaping the whirlwind of climate change with more and more severe weather events and more and more damage to their countries in economic and social cost.
1: Yes, I wanted to ask you you about that, Mia, because as you've mentioned, this isn't the first time that Vanuatu has been affected by cyclones. There there have been other major, even more more extreme, Category 5 cyclones that have hit the country. Do you see this as an outcome of climate change? Do you believe more attention needs to be put on that aspect of these natural disasters?
4: Without a doubt, these severe weather events have always happened in Vanuatu, but never with the intensity and the frequency that they are happening now. It is a way of life for people in Vanuatu and for the rest of the countries in the Pacific to have severe weather events that absolutely destroy whole communities, whole towns. And if this happens more and more frequently, as it has with Cyclone Pam in 215, uh, Cyclone Herald just in 2020, uh, the cyclones that have hit Vanuatu and Fiji and Solomon Islands. With these things happening as a regular event in all of these Pacific Island baby little countries, we need to be able to help these countries to adapt and also to be prepared and have resilient infrastructure, have better shelters, have better housing, more secure climate resilient infrastructure and agriculture. The cost to food systems and food security is extremely high. People's gardens, Whole uh, whole plantations of coconuts have been destroyed through these cyclones and will continue to be. So this is going to be something that the world has to understand that these countries don't have much that they can rely on. There is not much backup. Even if we have good soils, those soil fertilities are completely declining due to cli- climate change. And agriculture production is, is completely destroyed every time we have a cyclone like this.
1: Mm, Because I guess we often see, Mia, when the storm passes, the worst is over. But is it often? I mean, hearing you speak, it sounds like the worst is yet to come. It's all these other problems that come from these big events that can cause long lasting um, damages and, and experiences for these communities. Is that right?
4: Absolutely, because schools are disrupted, uh, farming is disrupted, there's a huge reliance on imported food, and we already have a burden of 70 to 80 percent mortality in Pacific Island countries from non-communicable diseases. And this is mainly by eating white rice, white sugar, white flour, imported foods. The food in Vanuatu and in Melanesia is very rich in nutrients. However, people are not eating their own food if they're having so many issues with farms being wiped out. And climate change has contributed to this without a doubt. And now we need to be able to help people to have climate resilient agriculture, to have better backups for food systems. Otherwise, the reliance for the next six months, I can see on white rice coming into the country is going to just plummet Health outcomes.
1: And now, me, I wanted to return a, to, for a second to Cyclone Judy itself. Um, and now we were expecting it to be a category three storm. It did pick up to cyclone, um, to a category four, uh, storm yesterday, I understand. Do you feel communities were well prepared for this? Obviously, these things are unpredictable, but do you think that change in, in the cyclone's tra- trajectory affected communities more
4: than it might have? I think it was very, very tough for the people in Tana last night. These are the people who were wiped out with, with Cyclone Pam in 2015. So they have a short memory of looking back to this time and how much destruction they suffered. So people definitely go to where there is a safe haven. They will find a structure that is Cyclone-proof. The problem then is this morning and Aramango and other communities that are experiencing this Category 4 Cyclone, TC Judy, a few hours after Vila. destruction will be far more widespread because you have people living in villages that don't have permanent houses. So in Port Vila you've got mainly the squatter settlements and people who are living in tin-roofed houses who have lost roofs and lost everything, then you go to Tana, where people are also living in houses that are made from traditional materials. There's many, many villages. There's 30,000 people in Tana alone. And for them to get hit again and have their houses wiped out again and food gardens, this is going to be the long-term impact as they wake up today and try to put the pieces of their lives back together again.
1: Uh, and Mia, you said you were working with the NDMO, the Natural, National Disaster Office there in um, Vanuatu. Uh, what, el- well, what else are your priorities uh, there at SPC for, for the day and week ahead?
4: SBC has always been the biggest backup of our NDMOs across the region, so we are in constant communication and constantly helping to provide data, to provide information, to help with coordination. We will be right next to our partners in the NDMO and the Meteo services over the next few days. The Meteo service has a lot of equipment and training and capacity now to be able to have these early warning systems in place. So this is a big contribution of SPC, the Pacific community, and we will continue to help. However, our work in climate change is really shifting to looking at how we can help these small island states to access climate finance in a very meaningful way to be able to have big, big changes in how we are able to help adapt.
1: Mia, thank you so much for your time this morning and and I hope you do stay safe. Thank you. And that was the Pacific Communities Melanesian director, Mia Rimon. And interesting stuff there, very explicitly talking about the impact of climate change and how that is linked to natural disasters like this cyclone. Tell us what you you think, um, particularly if you are in some of those affected islands. I do hope you are safe. Once it is safe for you to do so, um, do get in touch with us at ABC Pacific. We'd love to hear your thoughts about what needs to be done to prevent these frequent extreme natural disasters from happening. <music> You listening to Pacific Beat on your Thursday morning. Across the region yesterday, people took to the streets to commemorate Marshall Islands Nuclear Victims Remembrance Day. The day honors victims and survivors of nuclear testing done throughout Micronesia in the 1950s, including when a hydrogen bomb was dropped on Bikini Atoll. Marshallese nuclear justice advocate, Bedi Rathule, took part in the Remembrance Day marches in Fiji. She spoke with reporter Jordan Fennell about the significance of the day as negotiations continue around Japan's controversial plans to dump nuclear wastewater in the Pacific Ocean,
2: the Marshallese students at the University of the South Pacific usually collect all the partners and anti nuclear activists around the Pacific and host a solidarity march in Suva, where we march the streets of Suva declaring the call for nuclear justice. And afterwards, there was a commemoration program where we heard from the Marshall Islands ambassador, the acting secretary general of PIFs, and we also had a panel of speakers, which I was very honored to be part of and it was a really great event and a reminder that Pacific solidarity is really important to the cause.
5: And how would you describe the atmosphere during that March and, and, and during those talks?
2: The March was really incredible. Um, I think every year we're just amazed by how much people come out and support and the students are really excited to be a part of the event. They sometimes ask us before we even start planning, you know, is the March coming? Every year we learn, you know, we we learn lessons from the past and continue to try to build a better events. And this year was no different than past years where everyone was just having such a great time and uniting together in solidarity we all had our black shirts and our green ribbons and we were there were so many spectators They're like it was so it was so incredible and everyone just was really proud to hold up their signs and call out for nuclear justice and also for other struggles that everyone is facing in the Pacific like climate justice and even for human rights causes like The West Papua movement, all of that was encompassed in today's march. And it was just a really great show of friendship and working together and sailing together.
5: Uh, And this particular Day of Remembrance and these activities that are happening, it's all come under the, I guess, context of the fact that currently uh, the Pacific Islands Forums and Pacific leaders are in conversation with the Japanese government about Japan's plans to potentially dump nuclear wastewater from the Fukushima nuclear plant into the Pacific Ocean. Just how significant is it to have a day of remembrance like this in the context of that happening and playing out on the global stage?
2: I feel like it's so important. Otherwise, no one would be paying attention to nuclear issues like the Fukushima waste dumping. You know, we often in the Pacific are too humble to speak up and say things because we think that we don't, we're not always you know, in the Pacific, you should never assume that you're the smartest or biggest person in the room. So yeah, speaking up about these things is not easy, but when we stand together, it it's much easier. It's, it feels much safer to stand up and speak out when we know that we have each other's backs. So having a march like this, is really important in this context because we know that the Fukushima waste dumping is a really critical issue and we see the parallels to our nuclear legacy with what's happening today and how it's continuing to affect us. So I think the voices of youth and events like this are so significant in, in the context of what's happening in our region today.
1: That was Masha nuclear justice advocate, Bedi Rethule. Hopes are high among Kava entrepreneurs in the Pacific that Australia will extend its trial period, importing the once-banned crop. The trial is expected to end in December this year after running two years. Under the arrangement, Tonga exports more than 90 tonnes of kava, Fiji about half that, while Vanuatu exports just 22 tonnes. Some see that as unfair. But speaking to Caroline Tirumann, Vanuatu's Director of Agriculture Antoine Ravo says it is still a positive experience.
3: For Vanuatu, uh, uh, it's a positive impact for our uh, kava stakeholders as well as our farmers and um, the contribution back to the uh, GDP, uh, where Cava is now one of the main commodities that generates uh, a lot of social economic impacts to our society. So knowing Australia, Australia is a big market for us, and uh, having to uh, export the, some of the Cava products to Australia is a big uh, big breakthrough for uh, our industry, and we look. Forward to uh, more collaboration with the Australian market through the existing uh, frameworks and agreements that have been uh, set by the countries, two countries, one-on-one Australia.
6: Now, some Pacific Island states export more tonnage of kava to Australia than others, and I'm talking here about Tonga, which exports a lot more than even Fiji and Vanuatu. What happened there?
3: Yes, uh, it's true. Uh, Some of the Pacific countries, they export more it. like Tonga, from the report from Parma Plus. uh, Tonga has exported uh, 95 tons of car to Australia, Fiji 49 tons, and Vanuatu 22 tons. And There's a lot of factors that contribute in uh, different levels of uh, export. Uh, by the different countries. So based on the experience that uh, uh, the countries, countries have, uh, you know, Vanuatu has limited experience in other uh, products, uh, but has a strong experience in exporting products for, for cover to other markets as well. So uh, this is one and the other one is uh, looking at Tonga and Pichi, the highest exporting countries to uh, Australia. They have a uh, A lot of exporters there, while uh, Vanuatu has only 11 exporters that export uh, covers to Australia. So this is one thing that uh, the Vanuatu uh, Ministry of Agriculture uh, should uh, work more on in increasing number of uh, cover exporters uh, to export to Australia, but also uh, in return, giving back the benefits down to the farmers where the producers there, where they kava uh, for export.
6: It's not uh, anything to do with the quality of kava that maybe Tonga has over other countries, hence uh, it exports more to Australia? Or?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, uh, Australia, Australia market is, uh, you know, they have a strict protocols, and uh, I think uh, most of the Pacific countries' quality of kava well up to standards uh, now talking about codex standards and this is where the highest uh standard that uh, any countries need to comply with depending on the markets requirements uh, so quality yeah it's 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 one but also we're looking at also the, the price of the market so there's a lot of factors that would play so uh, for one or two, uh we are working hard with uh, our producers who also Improve or strengthening their quality in terms of uh, dry dry sand cover uh, to increase uh, access to market uh, in Australia.
6: Just in terms of cover consumption in Australia, so are these Pacific Islanders who live in Australia are consuming these, or are you also targeting uh, Pacific Island seasonal workers? in Australia, with what you export into Australia?
3: Yes, uh, we, have, we have different uh, types of markets. We have the Pacific Islanders uh, workers working in Australia, farms, commercial farms, but also some of the cover products are used for medical use. Uh, and this is another market where it provides high prices. So we target all markets uh, as much as possible. Uh, You know, in Australia, there's a lot of uh, Vanuatuans and uh, Tongans and Pijians living there, and also they consume cover that we export to them.
1: That was Antoine Aravo, Director of Agriculture in Vanuatu, and he was speaking there to Caroline Tierman.
3: Love sport?
5: Tune in to Can You Be More Pacific with Sarah Nangama and Dean Hallatau. The
6: Australian government have announced that they will be supporting rugby union in Tonga, Samoa, Solomon Islands and Fiji. Think about Fiji, they've absolutely dominated on the world stage. So I'm like, do you
2: guys really need the money? <laughs> Maybe we need to do like uh, some exchange with Fijian coaches.
5: Now that's a thought. Here, like. I love that. Can you be more pacific? Thursday night, 6 p.m. PNG time on ABC Radio Australia.
1: Well, you know, it's time for that special moment in Pacific Beat where we find out what's making headlines around the region. And, well, we have a special guest, though a familiar voice to regular listeners listeners of Pacific Beat. It's Jordan Fennell. Good morning, Jordan.
5: Good morning. And I love that. It is a special moment between us (laughs) With me back in the studio with you. I love being here. It
1: is. It is very special. One to mark. Um, Now, you have development in the hostage crisis involving the... uh, New Zealand pilot who was kidnapped in West Papua, well, a couple of weeks ago now. Can you give us the latest, Jordan?
5: Yeah, it's been quite the saga for Philip Mertens, who is that New Zealand pilot kidnapped in West Papua. The latest on that is that security forces in Indonesia's rest of Papua region have surrounded separatists, which are holding him captive. Uh, but they say that they're going to exercise restraint uh, while negotiations for his release continue. It's a development from yesterday. There was a press conference given by the head of the – the owner of the airline um, that the pilot was flying. At that time, they said that they didn't know yet where the pilot was, but – they have located him but are just waiting to see <laughs> how those negotiations uh, play out.
1: Oh, interesting that the airline head has come out. Um, how, did they have anything else to say about the situation?
5: Uh, so They had a one-hour press conference um, all in Indonesian that I was listening to this right. morning, so I was just grabbing bits and pieces. Which you do, which you do understand I slightly? do, yes. <laughs> um, although it's a bit rusty now <laughs> after mm. 10 years not living in Indonesia. Um, but the founder of that airline, uh, they were saying that they Dedicating all their resources, I think they're putting resources from the airline towards helping security forces in uh, with those negotiations. At the time of the press conference yesterday, they were saying they were helping to locate. Obviously, now the pilot has been located. these negotiations are happening because uh, the Papua National Liberation Army, who are holding the New Zealand pilot captive, they are hoping that this hostage situation is going to help Indonesia recognise the region's independence and withdraw troops. Those are their demands before they do release the New Zealand pilot. So it will be a very, um, yeah, a very sensitive negotiation uh, that's playing out at the moment.
1: Yes, and we do hope for the safe and peaceful return of, of that um, pilot. Um, Mertens there from from Indonesia or from the West Papua-controlled parts of Indonesia that he's being held.
5: Yeah, and hopefully it'll be obviously the second um, yeah uh, hostage hostage release that comes through following, of course, what's happened in PNG um, with researchers in the Highlands there.
1: Yes, Um, now let's head to well, we were just hearing earlier in the show about the impact of climate change on you know creating more and also more intense natural disasters around the region as a res- as a result of what Vanuatu's experience with cyclone duty. And now Australia has joined Vanuatu's bid for the international court to rule on obligations to prevent climate harm, all to do with climate change. Uh, can you tell us more about this, Jordan?
5: Yeah, this is actually quite a huge development, this report coming from The Guardian, that Australia has committed to co-sponsoring Vanuatu's resolution at the UN General Assembly. This is, of course, a uh, their resolution to the International Court of Justice, the ICJ, um, to have harm from climate change recognised, that's – you know, how harm is impacting on small developing mm. countries. The report uh, says that the Albanese government is expected to portray this particular support um, of co-sponsoring the resolution as recognition that climate change is the single greatest threat to livelihoods, security and well-being of the peoples of the Pacific, um, echoing, of course, what many Pacific leaders and Pacific peoples have been saying for quite a long time.
1: And quite a distinction, isn't it, from previous Australian governments, particularly the previous Morrison government that was criticised um, at the time for not not taking greater charge of the climate change um, situation and not taking the Pacific leaders' sort of concerns to the international stage. You call this huge. What, what impact does Australia joining actually mean?
5: Well, it now takes the tally of countries that have co-sponsored this resolution to 70. And Australia is one of the more heftier countries, I guess, on the political stage. Um, There have, of course, been lots of small developing countries who have co-sponsored because they are, of course, ones who are severely impacted and quite mm. vulnerable to it. Um, but Australia um, tacking on their support uh, brings weight on the political stage. Uh, and although it's a non-binding with Australia, uh, this particular resolution, uh, with Australia signing up, officials do expect it means it will uh, means the country will seriously consider um, that uh, countries under international law to protect the climate system, they'll be looking out for other smaller developing countries, not just in the Pacific, but on the global stage as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah, very interesting to see. There is that vote expected. We were expecting it last year. It got delayed. Now we're expecting it. Well, we've last year heard you know any time in the next few weeks. It could be as soon as March that we'd get this vote on getting climate change um, to the uh, International Court of Justice for them to make an advisory opinion on it. So yeah, there is a bit of urgency to it. And let's see if Australia is joining the bid might might make speed things along a bit faster. Yeah, we'll definitely keep track of it here at Pacific Beat. Indeed, Jordan. Thank you for the stories. No worries. You're listening to Pacific Beat. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan here with you from this Tuesday, or oh, actually Thursday morning, it's Thursday. <laughs> The Therapeutic Goods Administration in Australia is recalling dozens of cough medicines which cause deadly allergic reactions in people under general anaesthetic. The 55 products containing fulcadine, including a range of common cough syrups and lozenges, can no longer be lawfully supplied in Australia. So what should you do with cough syrup medita- medica- medicine in your cupboard? Rachel Hater reports.
0: The human race has become a lot more familiar with the dry cough over the last few years. Now there are fewer drugs on the market to suppress it. Folcadine is a very common, if not the most common cough suppressant available in Australia and we've been using it since the 1950s. Professor Trent Toomey is the National President of the Pharmacy Guild of Australia. Most Australian households will have this sitting in their medicine cabinet. The Therapeutic Goods Administration is cancelling 55 products containing the ingredient Folcadine. It's an opioid that works directly in the brain to suppress the cough reflex by reducing nerve signals. The decision was made because falcadine can cause deadly allergic reactions in people under general anaesthetic. The theory is that the exposure to falcadine in the cough suppressant medication can stimulate the formation of antibodies which cross-react with the drugs that are used to relax muscles, to paralyse muscles during major surgery. Dr Joanna Sutherland is chair of the Safety and Quality Committee at the Australian and New Zealand College of Anesthetists. Although this problem is rare, the outcome can be serious and indeed fatal. The TGA's recall affects a range of cough syrups and lozenges manufactured by Benadryl, Codrill, Chemist Zone, Terry White... Priceline, Diflam, Durotas and others. Dr Sutherland says the dangers of falcadine outweigh its benefits. In a 12-month period in 2019, we would estimate that over 400 people had episodes of anaphylaxis Around the time of an operation, and we estimate that just under half of those were caused by neuromuscular blocking agents. The European Medicines Agency recommended the withdrawal of faldine in Europe in December last year, which prompted drug shortages. Professor Toomey says that's unlikely to happen here. We don't anticipate that that will happen here in Australia because, as you'll know, in December that's the middle of the winter cold and flu season in the Northern Hemisphere, whereas we're removing this from market in March. And so we have several months before it gets to our Southern Hemisphere winter. If you have medicines containing Falkadine, you should ask your doctor or pharmacist to suggest an alternative treatment.
1: That was Rachel Hater with that story. You're listening to Pacific Beat. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. Samoan-born Fafafine trans activist Yemania Yim- Brown has worked to support equality in communities around the region. She's helped change laws, pushing for better understanding of LGBTQI plus people. And Imania is participating in World Pride's Human Rights Conference and joins us this morning. Good morning to you, Imania. Good morning. Um, Now, you are vocal in campaigning for Fafina and trans equality and LGBTQI plus equality through your work with uh, Equality Australia. But I understand it was an instance of hate and discrimination in Samoa that got you into activism yourself, Imania. Are you able to share a bit of that story with us?
7: Sure. It was a couple of things. There was a very prominent Fafafine that was killed in front of my house when I was about eight years old. And I always wondered what led people to actually kill such a vivacious and incredible character. Mm. And then growing up being Fafafine myself, and I ended up adopting children from Samoa, I wanted to I wanted to ask myself the question, what kind of world am I leaving to my kids, and I had to change something. So I became involved with the work of the Sam Wofafafin Association from here in Australia, and from that, it took me all the way up to now being the Co-Secretary General of ILGA World, which is based in Geneva, the largest LGBTI organization in the world, and, of course, I work for Equality Australia now, and so, yeah, and it's like now I'm kind of like, you know, paid to do something that I absolutely love.
1: Well, that's, that's a great point in your career if you can um, be, yes, paid for something you love. And, and in fact, what, you're, what, what you love doing is, is changing minds, changing policies around the region. And in fact, I understand you helped change laws in Samoa, particularly when it comes to um, the trans equality there. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that? What were some of the obstacles you faced in getting the, those laws repealed? And how did you work to overcome them?
7: It was around the adoption of my children, because in mm-hmm. Samoa you change your birth certificate if you were born um to because you're a biological male. In Samoa you cannot change your birth certificate. So I could never be listed as the mother of my children. I fought for the right to actually be allowed to be listed as a tran as a as a mother. Mm. Or for my children. And my children have birth certificates that states me legally as the mother, you know, and I live in Australia with my children. I'm proud to, 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 to be able to do that. And now all Fafafimis who have gender reassignment surgery, when they go back to Samoa and they want to adopt a child, they too can be listed as the mother of that child.
1: Oh, wow. So how, how does it feel to know that what you've gone through, people be, ahead of you won't have to face the, that same discrimination?
7: I mean, it's a great thing, but I didn't do it for everyone else. I did it for my children. I did it for me because I didn't want them to grow up with a birth certificate that says, well, they have no mother. They they have no adopted mother. They just I'm just listed as the father of the children, which, you know, it's it's ludicrous under the current, current, current situation. And I'm so glad that, you know, um, Queensland is now with the state where I live is now um, going through a, a, like a, a um. A, a process of reforming the, the, the birth certificate legislation in, in Queensland to allow trans women, um, you know, the, the ability to be able to change the, the gender on their birth certificates, which is something that, you know, that will never happen in my country, in Samoa, but it's okay. You know, I'm, I'm listed as the mother of my children's birth certificates. That's all I wanted.
1: Well, why do you believe that it will never happen in Samoa?
7: It's, it's the, the the myriad of religion, culture, and the, the the laws of the land, or, you know, those three pillars that govern the laws of the land in, 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 in Pacific countries. Religion is so important to people of the Pacific, which, I you know, I, I don't have a problem with that, but the problem is it, it restricts um, areas around law reform and also the way culture actually interacts with LGBTI people of the Pacific, especially, like, you know, countries like Samoa and Tonga and, and Cook Islands that are very, very heavily um, into their faith and and religion.
1: Mm. Because it's interesting, Imani, I wanted to ask you about this. Fafafine has such a a strong um, connection to communities in Samoa and such a a long one as well. Uh, Is there this difficulty where something that is so um, Samoa and has so much to say about the history and culture there? is also some, something, you know, the people who are Fafafine do still find difficulties there. Um, is, that, is that difficult for, for you to reconcile?
7: No, so it's not. We have a place in Samoan culture, we have a place as Fafafine. We do. We are respected. We are members of community. We are not hunted on the streets and killed. You know, we, 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 are, we are loved and cherished in our culture in our faith as long as we worship on Sundays we are cherished and respected and loved the laws of our land are not actually the same and it doesn't give us the same freedoms that you know um a trans say living in America or New Zealand or Australia would have but that's okay because we already have a place in our culture. The daily living of our lives is fine because, you know, we are respected and loved. It's just that when we get to the nitty-gritty or the detail of the law is when we, 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 we come into problems because, you know… Um, People might say, "Hey, um, I dress as a woman. I go to work for the public service. You should call me Miss." But then you have to go and change your name, and then you know you run into problems with the law. Mm. So whereas you're actually respected as a fafafine, you're not legally recognised as a fafafine.
1: And how do you feel about that? I mean, you says you sound like you've made peace about that. Um, but do you hope maybe one day, or or do you feel more comfortable in countries where the laws? Are more um, accepting of of Fafifine and, and trans people.
7: This is a problem that we're trying to have, and it's it, it relates back to colonization. Mm-hmm. And there's a huge push at the moment to decriminalize a lot of um like you know same sex relations, um, sodomy, um, a, a whole range of other things that um, that are on the books or on the on the laws of of Pacific Island nations. And and as a result, a lot of people, of course, attack. Um, colonization, that it was a bad thing. Of course, colonization did some awful things to First Nations and indigenous people. But colonization also brought us medicines, which, you know, we were able to address um, some of the, the, the deadly diseases like polio and all these other ones. It brought us vaccines. So what we need to do is, yes, we need to decolonize in the right way let's decolonize in a way that is that is good for the populations and it's and, and also recognizing that that it did bring some good things but the bad things it brought let's fix those let's fix those and fix those now including laws including Laws. It's really, really important that we get to fix the laws around the colonial laws that 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 actually hamper our, our freedoms as LGBTI people. But my, my preference, I don't really mind because when I go back to Samoa, I've had gender reassignment. I can I can fit in with my village. I am a chief in free villages. I'm a, I'm a Thai in free villages. I'm respected and you know they ask for my opinion in meetings and yeah, I contribute to my community and my family. So yeah, it's um it's fine for me here or Australia. So, Australia or Samoa, I'm okay where I live.
1: And how about in other communities, particularly around the Pacific? I mean, it sounds like Sa- Samoa, because of, its, um, because of its Fafafine community and the status of the Fafafine community there, has that, I guess, as you said, that cultural um, peace and equality there. Is that the same in, in other countries in the Pacific?
7: Absolutely. And uh, Tonga, there's um, the Laetis of Tonga, the lewa of Fiji, the Akavaines of um, of Kuku Islands, the Fakafifines of New way, even in the Melanesian countries like Papua New Guinea, Vanuatu, Solomon Islanders, you know, there, there is a place for people like me. And there is a different name for that. In all the 26 countries of the Pacific, there, are, there, are, there is a name for, for communities such as myself. And we have, a, we have a role and we play a role in our cultures. And that's why we are accepted by our cultures. It's when we come overseas and we have to live under the laws of, 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 of a Western country, such as Australia or New Zealand and their laws, I mean, over here, it's not so much about the culture, it's about the laws mm. that guide the behavior of the people. And that's when we run into problems.
1: Oh, very interesting. If you are just tuning in to Pacific Beat this Thursday morning, we're joined by Imania Brown. She's a Samoan-born Fafafine trans activist, and she's part of uh, Equality Australia and also World Pride's human rights conference that's happening over three days. I believe it started yesterday. Um, now part of your work, Imania, is about um, overcoming ignorance, removing ignorance, particularly when it comes to trans and LGBTQI plus people and those communities, what are the biggest misunderstandings rooted in ignorance that you often face and how do you overcome them?
7: That we are evil, that we are not human, that we are not deserving of love. And acceptance that we are outsiders, that there is something wrong with us, that we are the devil incarnate, that um, we need to be ostracized, we need to be converted back to how we were born, that, that there's only two binaries, the male and the female, that all these things are, like, if, if you wanted to deviate from that, that we're deviants and therefore we're sinners in the eyes of the Lord, it's like these are these are misnomers, these are like, you know, it's not true. We're just as capable of being loved and to give love. We're just as capable of being, you know, responsible um, members of society by supporting women and children and men. You know, like we're just as capable of, like, you know, um, like helping out in, in, in any form of social justice that requires assistance. We're just as capable of being loved by our God. And the thing is, it's not true that there's, there should be a binary. There's, it's more. More than a binary. Intersex people are born with intersex variations all the time. The incidence is really high. People were born with like more than one X chromosome. You know, it's like there's there's so much richness and, you know, in the tapestry of humanity. And I wish I wish everybody could see how beautiful we all are as souls and just accept us for for who we are. We're all on this planet. Let's make a difference for the better of this planet and humanity before we leave.
1: Yes, because hearing you talk about some of those misunderstandings and, and to be honest, hate that can um, face people like you, uh, Imania, I mean, it's so common in the Pacific, as you mentioned before, to use religion, to use Christian values. To legitimise hate, discrimination, reasons to reject people from communities. I mean, how how does it feel when people use religion, and how can churches overcome this? Oh, how can people, you know, despite their churches saying one thing, know that no, I'm going to follow a different path. That's the, that's the biggest challenge, isn't it, Nemanja?
7: Of course, and it's the churches that has that has to decolonize its mentalities. I mean, we had um, James Bhagwan, the the General Secretary of the Pacific Conference of Churches. He's not LGBTI, but he came to our conference and he spoke at our, he's speaking at our conference. He's already spoken. Like, we need allies, we need church leaders to stand up and say, you know what? These are not bad people. These are God's children, just like everyone else. And they are deserving of our love and our guidance. The church in the Pacific needs to decolonize its mentality. It needs to, like, stop. It needs to actually not not point the finger at LGBTI people, but it needs to read the damn Bible. That's what the churches in the Pacific need to do. Because you know why? Number one on the Bible is do not judge others, lest you be judged. And they're judging us. You know, so I'm holding up to all of them. So if you're a church leader from the Pacific and if you see me, the only thing you see me is not my face, but a mirror. Look in the mirror. Look in your heart. Look at what you're doing to my people. Because of that, my people are running away from the church because you're, you're, you're ostracizing us. You're pushing, it, you're pushing us out rather than be affirming. Be affirming and accept everybody in the name of Jesus. Mm. Sorry.
1: I get very- No, don't don't apologize because this is something that so many people I feel need to hear. I mean, we we see public figures, you know, the we're talking about religion. The other religion for many people is sports as well, and we see public sports people also come out, you know, publicizing discrimination as well. And sometimes in in the Pacific we see countries accept them back into their community despite having these you know, quite, quite hateful, uh, things. I mean, how do you feel like about that? Do does change? I mean, it seems these things are quite deep seated. How how can change happen?
7: Look, the sports sports heroes, um, and traditionally, um, Pacific people are very good at sports. So there's a lot of like um, our real life heroes in, in 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 Pacific that that play sports. And I don't have a problem with them. They they're really good at what they do. They're able to earn a living and support their families. You know, and back home, the problem I have is when they actually dip their toes into activism and say, "Oh no, I'm sorry, I'm not wearing a rainbow um, jersey because you know, um, because of my faith." Right? Mm. And they use religion as an, ex- as an excuse not to wear the jersey. Well, number one, you, all of you in the media, pay attention mm. to the other 13 players that wanted to play. Pay attention to them. Elevate them, you know, and, and talk to them about the reasons why you still want to play with a rainbow on your jersey, right? We give these, 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 these people so much airtime. It's like, oh, my God, you're refusing to do that. We're actually validating their existence. And we shouldn't. We should stop doing that. You know, the thing with them is it's so easy for them to actually use clobber passages, what we call clobber passages, to attack LGBTIQ. And it's based on just a small number of, of texts in the Bible around Leviticus. But in Leviticus, do, do uh, they, they always fail to tell you how many other sins in Leviticus that they are actually c- conducting. Everybody working on Sunday, do you know that in the Bible it's not allowed? We shouldn't be working on Sunday. Where will our tourism industry be if if, if that happens? Mm. No hotels will be open. Nobody will be arriving in the country on Sunday if we were to follow the Bible. But it happens every day. Mm-hmm. It happens every day, you know. But you take one passage in the Bible and you use it to kill and maim and attack LGBTI people. Like look in your souls. Don't look at mine. Mine is fine, but look into your souls because you're the ones that should be judging. You're you're the ones that should be judged.
1: Sorry. Mm. No, Imani. I can. I can hear the strength, and, and I, I'm sure the strength comes from so many, um, so many years, and, and the experience that you you've had in the space. And you are currently as taking part in a human rights conference. Um, we've just got a, a minute or so to to spare. But can you talk about quickly what you hope to achieve through those talks there at World Pride?
7: Um, I hope that at the end of three days, that all the 1,500 participants, plus, sorry, 1,800 participants that are coming from around the world and here in Australia... That they go back to their countries and that they've learned something. They've networked with someone. They've actually um, presented and shared and, and be able to continue the work. That they go home refueled, you know, and refilled in their resolve to continue that very important work to stand up, to stand up for our rights. Because if we don't do it, you know, nobody will. So I want them to go away when they get on that plane, when they get on that bus, to say, that was an amazing three days. Let's continue the fight. And that's all I ever wanted.
1: Well, Imania, all the best. And thank you so much for joining us this morning on Pacific Beat.
7: Okay. Thank you so much and all the best. And thank you so much for the support.
1: That was Samoan born Fafafine, trans activist, taking part in World Pride's Human Rights Conference there, Imania Brown. And with that, we come to the end of Pacific Beat for your Thursday morning. Stay tuned tomorrow because we'll have a sports version of our show, same time, same place. Until then, have a lovely day.